There are four related passages in the latter part of the book of Isaiah. All of them prophesy of this remarkable figure known as the servant or the servant of the Lord. And thus the passages are known as the servant songs. You'll often hear people refer to the servant songs of Isaiah. And ultimately, the servant in view can be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And the text that we're looking at this morning from Isaiah 42, the Old Testament lesson, that text is the first, the first of the four servant songs. And it's a key background for the baptism of Jesus, which we are celebrating today, and which we just read of in the gospel. It is the assigned Old Testament lesson for the Sunday on which the church celebrates Jesus' baptism. When the Father speaks from heaven at Jesus' baptism and says, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, he's echoing the language of verse 1 in Isaiah 42, and thus clearly identifying Jesus with the figure of Isaiah 42. And so, grasping the immense significance of Jesus' baptism, it's one of those things which seems odd, we're not quite sure what to do with Jesus' baptism, But it is of enormous importance grasping that and what it entails, what it calls Jesus to, depends on seeing the calling of the servant figure in the text in Isaiah 42. And so, then we'll look at our text under two main headings. They're there on your outline. The servant and justice in the first four verses. And the servant and creation in verses 5 through 9. So first the servant and justice. In verse 1, Isaiah 42, verse 1, the Lord, and here the Lord's speaking to us. He's speaking to us of the servant. He says, behold, or look, here is my servant. this This is not any servant. This is a servant who stands in a unique, privileged relationship. He is, God says, my servant. And the text says that the Lord upholds him or the Lord grips him fast in his calling. The text says he is the chosen or the elect one, the one in whom all God's people are chosen. The text says that he's the one in whom God uniquely delights. He's the beloved in whom we are all beloved children of God. This is the one then, revealed in his baptism as the beloved son of God, in whom God is well pleased. That is who the servant is, the chosen one, the one in whom the father delights, the one in whom he's well pleased, the one in whom you are chosen. The one in whom God can delight in you and be well pleased with you, for you are in Christ. So the the text in Isaiah 
continues and says, I will put my spirit upon him. Jesus' baptism was his ordination. It was his public anointing as Israel's Messiah. That is in large part why it's so important. And the spirit which descends on Jesus at his baptism in the form of a dove, that spirit is spoken of here. I will put my spirit upon him, prophetically envisioning the servant Messiah and his baptism. You may have noticed this, the same Trinitarian God who's revealed in Jesus' baptism, where the Father speaks and the Son is baptized and the Spirit descends, is present here in the Isaiah 42 text. That the Father speaks, the servant's Son is revealed, and the Spirit is placed on him. And so Jesus receives the Holy Spirit in his humanity. He receives it for his task as Messiah. You look at his life. Jesus is baptized in the Spirit. He goes forth to preach and to heal in the power of the Spirit. He offers up his life through the eternal Spirit. He's raised from the dead by that same Spirit. So that is how the the servant is empowered. So we've already seen who the servant is. And how he's empowered. But we, Isaiah then moves to the manner of his service or his ministry in verse 2. He says he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Meaning, he will not be bombastic. He's not going to draw attention to himself. He's not going to be self-aggrandizing. The manner of Jesus' ministry. He's not going to shout down and verbally dominate and intimidate his enemies. He's not an agitator. He's not a self-serving publicity hound. His ministry is going to be marked by calm, settled, firm, peaceable resolve. He doesn't have to yell. Now Jesus, as radical as he is, is not some sort of firebrand. Certainly not simply a firebrand. He's meek and lowly of heart. And this is the, the manner in which he ministers is critical. It's as critical as the content. The verse, verse 3 extends this dove-like spiritual gentleness to his interaction with broken people. The text says, this is one of, one of those wonderful texts in the Old Testament which everyone should be familiar with. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering or a faintly burning wick he will not quench or snuff out. The marvelous picture of Jesus' tenderness and his compassion. Those who are battered, those whose lives are all but extinguished, bruised reeds, barely smoldering wicks, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, they are going to find in this one, in this servant, one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. 
They're going to find a friend in Jesus. And so can we. So can you. In our brokenness, in our dimly flickering, wick-like lives. There are for the servant, then, no useless persons. There's no one who's too far gone. And there's no one beyond repair. Right? Because the servant comes to save and not to destroy. To give life and that abundantly. And so he will be, Isaiah sees, he'll be a shelter for those who need refuge. He's going to be hope for those who have had their hope broken or extinguished. And this servant ministers in this manner, empowered by this Spirit of God, the end of verse 1 says, for this reason, to bring forth justice to the nations. This is how he goes about his task. But this is the goal. The goal is justice. And justice here is extremely broad. It entails, as verse 4 indicates, bringing the truth of God's word to the world. He will establish justice in the earth, the text says, and the coastlands, that is the islands, the ends of the earth, will wait or they'll put their hope in his word or his law. And so the law, the proclamation, who God is, the proclamation of God's law, his word, goes forth from this servant in word and in deed, and it goes forth to establish Justice in the earth. That means that Jesus has come to right wrongs and to unbend the crooked world, to establish a just order. So this means that Scripture is concerned with justice. It's remarkable how often we can miss this sometimes. It's, it's very much concerned with justice in the world. And if we're a people concerned with Scripture, we have to be a people concerned about justice. The gospel leads to justice. And justice comes by means of the gospel. Notice this in the text, though. The servant is empowered by the Spirit, and the end is justice. I will place my Spirit upon him, and this one will bring forth justice in the earth. So let me, let me put this maybe a little more provocatively. The end is not your salvation. The end is not forgiven sinners. The end is not even the atonement. The gospel is central. The atonement is central. Your redemption is central. But the end is a rectified world. Justice. The gospel, the atoning death of Christ on the cross is utterly central and indispensable. But it is not the end. It is the means to get to an end. And the end is a just world. This is often not grasped. We have a a funny sort of scenario or situation often in the Christian church where Christians who are to the left of center want justice without the gospel. 
And Christians to the right of center are all about the gospel, but can't seem to be about justice. The gospel is ordered to justice. The gospel brings forth justice. The servant's mission, the messianic mission of the baptized Christ is to establish justice in the earth. And so the task before the servant is enormous and daunting. That's why he's empowered by the Spirit. But we're told at the end of verse 3 that he will faithfully bring forth justice. And that it will cost him. You can see that in verse 4. It says, he will not falter. The servant is not going to be a wick that gets snuffed out. He will not become discouraged. That word for discouraged is actually related to the earlier word for a bruised reed. He's going to suffer. Indeed, he'll be bruised and apparently snuffed out. He will be just like all those useless people, broken and snuffed out. But he will not falter, the prophet says. He will not be disheartened. He will accomplish, the text says, the establishment of justice. This is what the baptized Christ is doing this hour in heaven at the right hand of God. He seeks the establishment of a just order. And notice notice the scope of this justice. It's universal. It breaks out beyond the borders of Israel. It is justice, the text says, to the nations. Justice in the earth. This is why the baptism of Jesus follows, it's one of the reasons, it follows Epiphany, which we celebrated last week. Because Epiphany is about the light of the gospel going to the world, to the nations, and the baptism of Jesus also echoes that theme. This is why the Spirit was given to Jesus at his baptism. And so, it might sound odd, but the baptism of Jesus demands that we be a people passionate about gospel-driven, gospel-centered justice. Right? That we learn to navigate these two cliffs, justice without the gospel and the gospel without any concern for justice. That's one of the great things about the El Salvador trip that the young people are going on. Missions in general, when it's done well, has this impulse. But it, that, that's a trip that's trying to protect smoldering wicks and broken reeds by means of the gospel. The Great Commission is aimed at this at this healing of the nations, because the Great Commission says you go forth and you baptize people. And when you're baptized, you're baptized into the baptized one. You're baptized into this mission, into Jesus' baptism. This is also often missed, and it's part of why when we get to the baptism of Jesus, we just think that's odd what's going on there. In one sense, we can say Jesus was baptized before us. And then we are baptized into him and thus baptized into his mission. And this means that the sheer enormity of the injustice in the world will tempt us to grow faint and be discouraged. It's very clear that it's going to do that for the servant. He will not grow faint. He will not be discouraged. 
But, that me- but it also means then, as followers of Jesus, this is a fight we can't check out of. Because this is what he's doing. And so, we need to be more passionate about justice. Evangelical Christians are very passionate about their own souls and who's going to heaven and who's not. Not passionate enough about justice, in my humble opinion. And, this, and if we're passionate about justice, one of the things that means is we can't come to terms with the current state of affairs right, in the world in general. Right? I mean, we're gonna be, we, we dissent. We protest. We refuse to become numb. We refuse to avert our eyes to injustice. We refuse to forget the promised future. We refuse to shrink the faith down to the dimensions of our own spheres. We're people of this Messiah, baptized into this servant, laboring with him in repairing the world and hastening its coming reparation. So that's the servant and justice. I encourage you to find ways to get with his reparative work. The second, second point is the servant in creation. And this really just buttresses the first point. Verse 5, Isaiah 42, verse 5. It might seem a little out of place. This is what the Lord God says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth and all that springs from it. And having created everything, verse, the latter half says, he continues to give life and breath to all people. And so the text shifts to God as the universal creator, the universal sustainer of all things. But there's an important logic in the, in the, in the Spirit's guiding of Isaiah the prophet here. There's another Old Testament lesson. We don't use it this year. This year the lesson's Isaiah 42, the text we're looking at this morning. But on other years, the Old Testament lesson for the baptism of Jesus is Genesis chapter 1. Now you might think, what, what does Genesis chapter 1 have to do with the baptism of Jesus? Well, there's a good reason for it. The Spirit and the Word of God brought order out of that primordial darkness, out of the original unformed creation, and the world came forth. And that same Spirit and Word given to Jesus the servant in his baptism, is going to bring forth a reordered and a renewed creation. And so the church has always instinctively connected the creation of the world and the baptism of Jesus because it sees in the baptism of Jesus the inauguration of a new just world order, the renewal of that original creation. And so, Isaiah references God the Creator. The the baptism of Jesus and the justice that flows out from it have universal range because the Lord God who holds him fast, the Lord God who chose him, who delights in him, who endows him with the Spirit, is the creator of all things. It's not possible to embrace justice and to be passionate about justice without a robust doctrine of creation. Creation is not just background scenery for the really spiritual things. Creation is something that God is committed to restoring. And so when the doctrine of God as the creator of 
all men and women and children, of all things, visible and invisible, the sustaining Lord and giver of all life, where that drops out of sight or it becomes thin, you can bet a concern for global mission and global justice will vanish with it. But in Isaiah's mind, justice must come to the ends of the earth, to all the nations. The gospel goes forth to the ends because the God of the servant is the universal Lord God creator of all things. So every person that you see was knit together and is being sustained and upheld by the word and spirit of God. The, uh, the Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance used to say, Jesus Christ is the secret mystery of every human being, whether they acknowledge it or not. They are sustained by his kindness. Even after the fall, they bear his image. And so we seek for them, through the gospel, justice. We seek the preservation of their dignity, we seek human flourishing. And in verse 6, the Lord who has spoken of the servant now actually speaks to the servant in the text. He's been called in righteousness, basically synonymous with justice in Isaiah 42. You might remember from the reading of the gospel, from Matthew's gospel this morning, when Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized... John the Baptist says, I I should be baptized by you. And Jesus' reply is, permit it now to fulfill all righteousness. And Isaiah had said, I'm going to call this servant in righteousness. And so this text shows us just how extensive the righteousness is Jesus was baptized to fulfill. And then the text says of the servant that there's three things God is going to do for the servant and with the servant. He's going to take him, keep him, and give him. Give him as a covenant to the people. Take him, keep him, give him. This is is always what happens when God takes or lays hold of us. God takes you, he lays hold of you. Then he keeps you and he gives you at the same time. In fact, unless he gives you, you're not being kept. You cannot be kept in the spiritual life by some standoffish acts of self-preservation. You can only be kept by being given. And you can only be given by being kept. And that's what he does for the servant. He lays hold of him, takes him, keeps him, gives him. And he's given, the text says, as a covenant for the people. As light for the nations. And I'm sure you're familiar with this. The covenant is first and foremost the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai. That's prominent in this text, actually. Uh, Notice the end of verse 4. The justice which the Messiah brings is tied to the law, to the Torah. At the end of verse 4, the coastlands will wait for his Torah. And also throughout the text, the covenant name of of Israel's God, Yahweh, is used. The Creator God, in verse 5, is the covenant Lord of Israel. Verse 6, I am the Lord. Again in verse 8, I am the Lord. This covenant is the covenant 
that the God of Israel makes with Israel. But again, notice something stunning here, and we should expect it by now, I think, in this text. The covenant which formerly belonged to Israel alone is now universal. It's a covenant for the people, the text says. The end of verse 6 says it's light for the nations, all the peoples, that the Lord God, the creator of the ends of the earth, all the people to whom he gives life and breath. The covenant now comes to them. Jesus, in his baptism, is the bringer of the new creation, but he's also, and this bears down on this idea of the covenant, he's also the new Moses. He's the new Moses and the new Israel. And you can see this by the fact that just as Israel passed through the waters of judgment, right, the waters of the Exodus, and then they entered the wilderness for 40 years of disobedience, Jesus passes through the waters of the baptism of repentance, and he is immediately driven by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days of testing. One of the things the gospel writers are saying to you and I is, this is the new Israel. This is the obedient Israel. This is the new Moses. He's going to obey where Israel failed. But the thing I want you to see is this. He is a Catholic Moses, a universalizing Moses. He is Moses who takes the covenant that was meant for Israel and brings it to the nations. All this, beloved, foreseen by the prophet Isaiah of the servant of the Lord. And this covenant universalized, spread to all lands, is finally transformed into the new covenant. You can see this unfolded in verse 7, that he's going to come to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. The same servant who's not going to raise his voice, who's not going to quench a dimly burning wick, is going to bring healing, and he's going to bring light, and he's going to bring liberty for the blind and imprisoned peoples of the world. These words here are virtually identical to the words Jesus opens his public ministry with. From Isaiah 61. Remember Jesus' first sermon at the synagogue? Right after his baptism? He uses these words. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus might as well have said, I'm going to preach now, and for those of you who are attentive, I'm the messianic servant of Isaiah 42. And so the law, the covenant, the justice which is to be administered to the nations are forever now bound up with the proclamation of Jesus and his gospel. This is why the gospel is so important. This is why human beings need it. So just to repeat, a passionate concern for justice means a passionate concern for the gospel, and a passionate concern for the gospel means a passionate concern for justice. What God has joined together, let no man separate. 
Finally, verse 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. There's much that could be said here, but I want to highlight this. The glory of God, his own resplendent majesty, that is what guarantees the success of the servant's mission. That mission ultimately will lead fully to a new creation. Look at verse 9. Behold, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Now, these can be new things in history as well, of course, but ultimately the new thing is the fullness of the new creation. And Isaiah hints at it there in verse 8. Jesus then is the baptized servant. He's the new humanity. And he's the maker of a new heavens and a new earth in which justice dwells. Remember the Apostle Peter in the New Testament. He says, we are waiting, 2 Peter 3, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So behold, the text starts with a a word to us to look. Behold then, see again, I charge you, see with fresh eyes this servant of the Lord, this Jesus, baptized with the Spirit for this mission. And remember, we have been baptized into this baptized one for the same mission. So let us labor together with him in his cause. Let us embrace those who are broken and bruised. Let us not be disheartened or be discouraged because he did not falter. And the establishment of justice, the triumph of it, is sure. Amen.